0: Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are bang in the middle of our new series called Political Intrigues. Last week was the Dreyfus Fair, and this week I believe is taking place somewhere in Italy.
1: And Yes, a port on the Italian East Coast, which became quite a turbulent place for the Jews in 1556. And most of the events are actually covered, described, in rabbinic responsa, those actually coming from the Ottoman Empire and not Italy itself. And the responsa address not only the halachic arguments of the case that we're going to discuss, but also information about trade on the Adriatic coast, where Jews, especially the Portuguese Muranos, played a leading role. And it was a place of tension in within the Mediterranean because the expanding Ottoman Empire collided with European powers, the Venetian Republic, Spain, Genoa.
0: You just mentioned Portuguese Muranos. Could you just clarify what you mean? They were living in Italy at the time?
1: So by 1500, any Jew living in Spain and Portugal had to... Live fully as a Christian, meaning we refer to them or to a number of them as uh, Murano Jews. But the actual observance of Judaism was minimal. There were simply very few opportunities to do so without being caught by the Inquisition, which meant that one of the things the Jews tried to do, especially those in Portugal, was leave. Um, and uh, to try and find a safe haven to get to. And neither the leaving nor finding the safe haven was easy. But it happened that in 1547, which is a number of years before our story takes place, these new Christians, as the ex-Jews, so to speak, were called by the church. They were offered safe passage in the port of Ancona and a group of them entered into an agreement with the city to set up a loan bank which would help the poor of Ancona. And in northern Italy, these type of banks were almost a specific Jewish function, that they were the reason why Jews would be allowed into towns in the first place. And were they to do so, in return, 35 Portuguese Jewish families would be allowed in and they were guaranteed freedom from prosecution because coming to town meant that they would now stop behaving as Christians and revert to Judaism, which of course was heresy in the eyes of the church. So the only way the Jews would do so was with a guarantee. And they were also promised that They would have 12 months grace to settle their affairs if anything in the city or the region would change. And this, unusually, was guaranteed by Pope Paul III, subsequently Pope Julius III as well, on the basis that their original conversion to Christianity in Portugal had been forced upon them, unlike Spain, which was true but had been ignored until now.
0: Isn't that a bit odd why they would agree to that?
1: It's part of a a much broader discussion as to why the popes should change their mind. It was obviously based to a large degree on finance. Uh, There's a book called The Jews in the Age of Mercantilism, which explains this in detail. But in brief, there was a deal that was struck and kept to. And it was somewhat ironic that Italy, even though it was obviously the seat of the Pope, was therefore less religiously fanatical at that particular point in time. Then, uh, and all of this is fine until 1555, when Pope Paul IV, who burnt the Talmud in public, who ordered the Jews of Rome into a ghetto, now sends a representative to take proceedings against these Anconan Portuguese renegades, in his mind, who had lapsed back into Judaism. Now, at first, it was concerned with the confiscation of their property. Later, as the uh, responser referred to it, the pestilence spread, and all the Jewish men living in Ancona, who had initially been Christians in Portugal, were arrested and thrown into prison. So they tried to levy, so to speak, a tax, a bribe, and present a large amount of money to the Inquisitor, and that didn't work. But the Inquisitor wasn't immune, and 30 Jews eventually did escape as a result of large amounts of money changing hands. But he was then replaced because Rome found out about it. And the new commissioner was a fanatic who ordered that the Jews be put in chains and tortured. And they were then submitted to the full force of the Inquisition. Sometimes these took place in the main square and They had no defense because yeah, they had discarded Christianity and had lived openly as Jews The fact that the Pope was ignoring a document that his predecessors had signed didn't give him any sleepless nights So the church offered what they often did in these circumstances a choice those who would repent and undertake to conduct themselves as faithful Christians, could be reconciled to the church and therefore allowed to live. But for those courageous Jews who refused, there was only one possible outcome, and that was death. And in the the spring and summer of 1556, a series of acts of faith was held in Ancona, and 24 Jews were handed over to the secular arm of the church for execution the first victims were murdered on April 13th including um, a woman the only woman in the group called Donna Mayora Shimon Ben Menachem and others whose exact names we still have we have the full list of these 24 Jews one thing to bear in mind This is quite surreal. There are still Jews living in Ancona, living openly as Jews, whilst these Portuguese Jews are being burnt at the stake. Meaning, Italian Jews living there couldn't be arrested by the church because the charge was heresy. You had accepted Christianity and you'd now lapsed back into Judaism. But Italian Jews living there had never professed any other faith other than Judaism. So they were untouchable by the church or, for instance, for that matter, than Judaism. So they were untouchable by the church or, for instance, for that matter, um, Ottoman, Turkish Jews living there. And therefore, these Jews were witness to these auto de fe very differently to those Jews burnt at the stake in Portugal or Spain, and they could testify to you know, what happened. And they talk about the fact that as the Jews were being led to the stake, they made the bracha, Asher Kedushanah, be Baruch has commanded us, al Kidush Hashem, to sanctify God's name, this case, through their deaths. And for many years afterwards, the liturgy of the local communities on Tisha B'Av included a kinnah for these martyrs. So there were therefore this group that were put to death and there were 38 Jews who professed repentance as their punishment and most of them were condemned to be slaves in the galleys to row and they were sent to Malta wearing the green yellow robes of contrition which they were to wear for many years to come but on the way they somehow managed to overcome their guards not quite known how, and they escaped some to Ferrara, some to Turkey, where they took up Judaism once again. But this was a tragedy and brought about by yet another betrayal from the Church and the Pope. A tale which is unfortunately all too familiar in history.
0: A terrible story. The other Jews in Ancona, they were fine. Nothing at all happened to them. You
1: mean the Italian and the the Turkish Jews? Yeah. So nothing really happened to them, meaning when the church originally came and confiscated all of the Jewish Portuguese property, because the church is very much a believer in hmm. that if you're going to murder, you may as well inherit and become rich from the murders as well. So in that process, a great deal of property belonging to other Jews, especially Ottoman Jews, had been seized and some were arrested. And in Turkey, the Sultan had a personal audience with uh, Donna Grazia Nasi, who was a Jewish woman of tremendous um, ability and courage and wealth, and one of the most powerful figures in Ottoman Jewry. And he listens to her story and sent an envoy to Ancona, demanding the release of all those prisoners who were protected by the Turkish Empire and he threatened reprisals if the request was not complied with.
0: Well, weren't they a bit worried to, to almost declare war with Europe?
1: Turkey was the greatest military power of the time and at this time probably at the height of its reputation, not scared of a fight with Christian Europe. Also, I guess it's true to say that Turkish Muslim policy was far more tolerant and humane than European Christian policy. I mean, just to to quote to you little extracts of the letter so you get an understanding of how strongly it was worded. So he writes, you know, We therefore request and will no longer excuse any failure. We are in full confidence that you will do so and we will say no more. This is not not somebody who's interested in negotiation. And this letter was written on March the 9th, 1556, before the unfortunates were burnt at the stake, but after the Inquisition had come to town.
0: I could definitely see the political side of this tale. I'm just wondering about the intriguing part.
1: So the (laughs) intrigue is Jewish. Because now, at this point... movement starts to avenge the martyrs in a way that had not been practiced by Jews in Europe ever. The idea grew of an economic boycott. Some of the Jews who escaped Ancona ended up in Pizarro, which is around 100 miles up the coast, and they approached the Duke of Urbino, their new ruler in this neighboring district, to ask him to accept all Jewish refugees into Pizarro. And the refugees then write to the rabbis in the Ottoman Empire as follows, that if the Duke accepts us in, it obviously puts him on the collision course with the Pope. And we therefore have to show the Duke that he would benefit by taking such a risk So if we promise to organize a boycott of the other place of Ancona by the Jewish merchants of the Ottoman Empire and to divert all their trade to Pizarro and you, the Rabonim of Turkey, uh, approve of this boycott, then the Duke will accept us in and they add in their letter that the acceptance of even the first group of refugees in Pizarro had already broken the relationship between the duke and the pope because Paul IV sent his commissioner demanding that the moranos be turned over for trial by inquisition but the duke who wanted to develop his city and the economics thereof and relying on the boycott defied the pope so the pope was he was furious and he dismissed the duke from the position that he had of being the captain general of the papal armies for which beyond the position there was also a substantial salary so they wrote that the boycott was now an imperative on a number of grounds as vengeance for the lives of the martyrs as punishment to the city of ancona and as fulfillment of a commitment to reward the Duke for his generosity, sacrifice, and to guarantee, therefore, as a result, the safety of the Muranos in Pizarro, because if the promise isn't fulfilled, the Duke will turn against the Muranos. And they added, finally, that even though the Jews in Ancona opposed the boycott, the remaining Jews there, it was selfish economic interest because they value their own money more than the lives of the refugees. So, you know, they write to these Rabonim in Turkey and say, help us.
0: I'm surprised that the Turkish Jews controlled enough of the sea trade to pull off such a
1: boycott. In certain products, definitely. It's not just the Ottoman Empire that was at its height, but the the Jews involved in trade there. The Jews could inflict damage and therefore, as an alternative, build up Pizarro. They could also persuade potentially non-Jewish merchants to whom they could apply the argument that as long as you sell your stuff, you don't care who you sell it to, which in many cases was probably true. Having said that, this is all one side of the argument. These are the people who are the proponents who are proposing the boycott. There were opponents to the boycott, all within the Jewish world, starting with the Ancona Jews. They also write to the leaders of Turkish Jewry, and they say that the refugees should never have gone to Pizarro. Why are they looking for refuge in a Christian country? You know, haven't you learnt from history yet? And anyway, the refugees' acceptance in Pizarro Wasn't as claimed the Duke said that whoever wants to come would be welcome. It was his initiative not theirs because He was happy to receive the Portuguese who were well known for their commercial talents and therefore the promise of a boycott wasn't a condition of acceptance in fact it was actually the Moranos who came up with it after they arrived to ensure their own prosperity. So who exactly is it who's acting out of selfish economic motives? Um, and the important thing to bear in mind is this isn't really a simple or even a complex uh, question, a financial halachic question, you know, who has the right. It's much more involved. Because the claim being made is that the boycott will have dire consequences, possibly of life and death. If it takes place, the Christian leaders in Ancona will complain to the Pope that the Jews are undermining the Pope and the Church... And the Pope's reaction is likely to be that he will intensify his persecution of the Jews, turning against all the Jews living in the area, putting them in ghettos. Even if he can't hand them over to the Inquisition, he can make life extremely difficult for them. And since there are many more Jews in the Papal States than in Pizarro, then the principle of, in nefesh, nefesh, You cannot cast away one person's life when another is already in the spotlight. So you know who comes first, and carrying out the boycott is potentially a greater risk than any danger that await the Jews of Pizarro. So the rabbonim now need to assess not just the facts, but the likely outcome of circumstances. It's a really difficult to ask. You need to second guess how the Pope is going to react to the boycott, how the Duke will react to a lack of a boycott. In fact, Rabbi Shoshantino initially gave four different answers to the question, each relating to a different factual situation regarding the dangers facing the Jews of of Pizarro and Ancona. And we know that the Pope was hostile to the Jews. In fact, he was willing to ruin almost the Christian merchants of Ancona by not allowing them to collect the debts owed to them from these portuguese moranos who he uh, persecuted but possibly the pope is sort of the you know the playground bully he takes on little children but what happens when he faces an adult so the emissary of the refugees in pizarro rabbi yehuda farai travels across the sea and makes his first stop in salonica he requests a boycott And uh, is given an an enthusiastic response. And the different Cahillus within the city, of which there were quite a number, all agreed that, you know, uh, businessmen merchants have to divert their business to Pizarro, but on one condition that the other main Jewish trading communities of the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople, Adrianople, Bursa, that they all agree to the boycott. So he then goes on to Constantinople, which was key to his mission. And once again, the communal leaders are called together, and Rabbi Shur who we mentioned, who later became the most uh, respected rabbinic opponent of the boycott, wrote that he was so uh, stirred at this meeting by the plight of the uh, martyrs and the refugees that, you know, his his eyes overflowed with tears. And the leadership of Constantinople jury agreed to this boycott for eight months until Pesach. Uh, however, they realized that they also needed those Those, you know, those those other cities to agree, and therefore, if all cities agreed, the five or six main ones within this eight-month period, the boycott would be given permanent status. But if they didn't, then it would lapse at the beginning of Pesach of that yontif.
0: So it seems like round one went to those in favour of this boycott.
1: Yes, but quite soon afterwards, problems began to emerge. In Adrianople, many of the merchants objected. Uh, The Jews of Bursa rejected it completely out of hand. Uh, They gave as their reason, as reported in the Truva of the Mabit of Ramesha Mitrani, who people may know is buried in the old cemetery near the Ari and the reason they gave for rejecting the boycott was not out of concern for the others, for the Jews of Ancona, but simply economic. The losses that they would sustain in finding a new market, they said Pizarro has inadequate port facilities, and seemingly some people had gone to Pizarro in good faith and found that they were unable to unload their goods or sell their cargo and then had to turn away. So, therefore, they said the boycott was a gzera Sheena Yochalamidbo. It was a, a decree that the majority of the community was unable to live with. And therefore, the merchants did not want to risk economic ruin as an act of revenge against the Pope or even to protect refugees from the future anger of the Duke who otherwise may expel them.
0: That's a very strong argument.
1: Yes, it is a a strong counter-argument in Halacha. it is. Um, So now the Jews of Pizarro turn to Donna Grazia again, and she and her son-in-law, Don Joseph Nassi, uh, begin to exert pressure for compliance with the boycott. And Rabbi Yehuda Farai went to the leading rabbis of Constantinople. There were a number of them, some are better known than others, the uh, Marie Ibn Lev, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Lev, uh, Rabbi Ram Yerushalmi, Rabbi Avram Sabah, and convinced them to sign a statement requiring all Jews to uh, undertake the boycott because it was saving life in Pizarro. And she also got the agreement of Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And the Mahari now approaches Rav Yeshua Sonsino, who was the Rav of the main shul, the great synagogue there. He was originally Italian. He was a descendant of the famous family of printers. But he'd come to the conclusion that the embargo was not only politically inadvisable, but from a Talmudic standpoint, actually invalid, uh, illegal, for a variety of reasons, which you can find in his truva on the matter, so he refuses to sign. And obviously for a blockade to be successful, it needs to be universal, and this one no longer was. There were communities that were not prepared to live by it, and Rabbonim, who had opinions different to those expressed by the proponents. And he says that Pizarro's Jews, anyway, couldn't have, or at least shouldn't have said, that they would pull off a boycott because there is no king of the Jewish people. It's impossible to achieve uniformity of opinion and compel everyone to carry out particular conditions. And he goes back to this argument that we mentioned earlier about settling in a Christian land rather than in the Ottoman Empire, that they place themselves in the legal category of suicides.
0: It's quite harsh.
1: Yeah, no, but he's taking a halachic opinion on the matter. So the trade of the port of Ancona begins to revive, and it wasn't long before there was a shawl there, an Ottoman Levantine shawl, which was uh, frequented by visiting merchants. And by the early 1600s, 15% of the city is Jewish. They would be housed in a ghetto, which would continue for centuries, as would Jewish life there. Therefore, if we look back at the event itself... The boycott was an unparalleled event in history, Uh, the only attempt before the 20th century to organize mass Jewish economic pressure for the benefit of Jews persecuted in other lands. There would be a similar move with Russia at the beginning of the 20th century with Nazi Germany in the 1930s, but not as early as this. But ultimately, it didn't happen, and who is to say who was you know right in the in the argument
0: well fascinating whatever happened to the jews of ancona
1: the jews of ancona stayed for a while the jews of pizarro would eventually be expelled not that much later Uh, but the truth is that within a few decades the pope ordered all of the jews in middle and northern italy into ghettos they were a few well-known ones and all the smaller places basically had to get rid of their Jews and move them into these central ghettos. Is
0: there anything left to see? Any remnants?
1: Yes and no. Well, we are going to be doing a four-week series on Italy in a few months time and we'll talk more about that when we deal with the ghettos as a whole.
0: Okay, thank you very much. That brings uh, this episode to an end.
1: Can I just mention, actually, that I am aware that we have had emails from people about the Dreyfus Affair, including the new museum that has opened, which is a very recent change. We will get there um, over the next couple of weeks.
0: Where has the museum opened? In
1: France, in Maison Zola. In fact, I believe from what I read that President Macron opened it. So it was in the last month or so.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed. So we'll see you next week. Just remind us what's next week? London. London. Come back home. Thank you very much. And as always, any feedback, comments, questions can be emailed to at jle.org.uk. Yes, Rabbi Hirsch does read them every now and again, as can, as you just heard. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch.
1: Thank you.